Well, my name's Ben. For those of you who do not know me, I'm one of the elders here. Um, I'm married to Lauren, my lovely, beautiful wife, who looks after the children's ministry. And it's my honour and privilege to be able to bring God's word to you all this morning. Now, as most of you know who have been coming here for a while, we've been tracking through the Book of Romans for probably about 15 years, and now we're up to um, Romans 13. And so that's what we'll be looking at today. But to warm up, I thought we'd play a game first of all. So what I want you all to do is, everyone, can you all please stand up? Now, the stakes are high. At stake is a uh, box of Cadbury's favourites. Now, what I want to do is, if you're a visitor here today, here for the very first time, can you please sit down? We love you, but this is not for you. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Now, if you have been here for one year or less, please sit down. We love you too, but this is not for you today. I'm sorry. Okay, five years or less. Who's been here for five years or less? I'd be probably in that category, me and my family. Ten years or less? So even the pastor, oh my goodness. <laughs> Where's the commitment, Mark and Mel? Come on. Okay, we're up to ten years. What about, um, should we go up a little bit quicker? Twenty years. Who's been here for, tw if you've been here for twenty years or less, please sit down. Wow, that's pretty impressive. 25 years or less, please sit down. Oh my goodness, this is about half the congregation here that are still standing up. What about 30 years or less? If you've been here for 30 years or less, please sit down. Whoa. Now, this is where I need to get, where's the fine increments here? 35 years, would that bring everyone to their, their seats? No? 35 years, please sit down, 35 years. 40 years or less, please sit down. Oh, we've lost a few. Four, we've got three, three groups standing. Maybe we should just finish. Who's, how long have you been here for Martin and Virginia? Okay. <laughs> Di, what about you? Sorry? 43, and it's been here longer than 43 years, I presume, so is that... About 50. 50. <laughs> really? Officially 49, but two years of... Yeah, three years of... Okay, and okay, between Kay uh, and Graham and the Gares, who's been here longer? Oh, Jeff. 43, 43 years, and Kay and Graham? Well, Martin was a child. Okay. <laughs> 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 okay. Yes, okay, very good. Were you at the start of the fellowship? Because they waited six months. They're late coming. I started our meeting in my parents' home and the Dyer's home at the top of Archibald Road. I think Martin's got it. Yeah. <laughs> Martin will get it, but I, I think there might have to be some sharing going on here. <laughs> I'll give it to my parents. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> now, the purpose of that, it was, it was fun, but probably the bigger thing is what I really want to do is just honour those who have been 
at this church, in this congregation for such a long time, who have weathered the, the, the bad times, who have sort of gone through the good times, but have stuck with it. And I think there's one thing that's amazing about church is I've heard someone who's quite senior in church circles one time make the comment to say, it is amazing what people put up with. And, <laughs> and it's true. You know, there's, there's things that happen, but there's a faithfulness that comes not because we're committed to um, a group or an organisation or an association, but we're committed to Christ. And there's people who can see beyond what we're currently experiencing to see a greater calling. So I want to honour you, Kay and Graham, honour you, Di, honour you, Martin, and all of those who have been here for a long time. So it's not just an honour for, for Martin, although he won the prize, but an honour to all of those who have been here, stuck it through. And that, just for those who are listening, it was amazing. Probably about 50% of the people here have been here over 20 years, roughly, which is phenomenal. So what I'm going to be preaching about today or sharing with you about is about Romans 13. So in terms of context, we've been preaching through the book of Romans and um, last week we had a break from that. Mark preached on Father's Day and for those who haven't heard that message, awesome message, go back and listen to it. Definitely worth listening to it, um, particularly if you're a man, but for anyone, excellent message. But really, in looking at the book of Romans, we've tracked through from Romans chapter 1 all the way through, we're in chapter 13 now. So Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11 really lays out a doctrinal foundation and it's probably the most eloquent and well-structured and complete explanation of the gospel and new life in Christ and everything that Jesus brings to us. Then from chapters 12 through to 16, Paul really then unpacks that to say, well, now that you've got that doctrinal foundation, it means something, it will impact your life, it will change the way you live it will change the way you make decisions. It will change the way that you relate to other people in your own family. It will change the way that you relate to other people in your church community. It will change the way that you relate to other people in your workplace. It will change the way that you relate to your community at large, your local government, your state government, and even the Commonwealth government, and even more broadly, the way that you see the world as a whole. It will make a change in your life. In terms of the, this, this message, it really is sort of a message that is Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7 is really the most clearest statement, the clearest statement in, in the New Testament about how we as Christians, how we should posture ourselves towards government. There's a few other verses which tap into the same train of thought and they're consistent with this. But this is the most complete, uh, you know, the best explanation of the way that Christians should posture themselves towards government. Now, I want to sort of set the scene for this. So, early in Rome, around the, the time that this was written, there was an Emperor Nero. Now, Nero came to the throne as a young man, very young man, in fact, as a teenager. He was only about 14, I think, or 16 when he became emperor which was remarkable. Basically, all power, all judgment, power, the power of judgment sort of all came up to him, all executive power came up to him, um, and all the lawmaking power eventually found itself in, headed in this single person at that time for the empire that governed, you know, the Near East and all that, that area. Massive power. All vested in one individual. A boy, 16 years old. He came to the throne at, um, after probably about two or three emperors after Augustus, which was the emperor at the time when Jesus was born. 
Now, Nero is actually is renowned for his tyranny, renowned for his cruelty, renowned for his reckless life in the way that he basically spent all the money in the empire and sent, sent the empire broke, which that triggered meant higher taxation. Um, he was renowned for his extravagant lifestyle. He, he, he sort of saw himself as someone as a gifted singer, an orator, and even an athlete at times. And when he would compete, he would rig the game so that basically he would win. You know, like who would want to beat the emperor at the game that they thought they were the best at? Now, he ruled um, for probably about 14 years. And in, in the end, uh, he basically committed suicide after he fled. He was so unpopular, everyone hated him. But there was a few things that he said. He, once he, someone said to him uh, a quote which said, um, reciting the, the lines of a Roman poet, when I am dead, may fire consume the earth. But when Nero heard that, he said the first part of the line should read, while I yet live may fire consume the earth. He was famous for, there was an area of Rome that he wanted to clear for new development. In order to do that, he sent some of his, his guys out there to basically burn the city. Then, while that was happening, he sat in a high tower, dressed in the robes of someone who would give a, the play of a, a, comet, a tragedy, and he sang um, during that whole tragedy. And he described the flames as he saw that burning, the beauty of the flames, he said, as he saw the city of Rome burn. And for that devastating act, he blamed the Christians. And then there was an outright persecution against the Christians. He, it is said that at his, some of his parties, he would um, put Christians to death in the most cruel way for his own pleasure. He was a, a personification of cruelty, of extravagance, of humanity really at their very worst. And yet he was the person that carried all that governmental power all in that single person. Let's fast forward quickly into the, the 20th century and we can look at Germany um, after World War I and it's rising again out of those ashes. It's in a depressed place. The Nationalist Socialist Party has sort of come to the fore. Very popular, very popular. Germany at that time, there was probably about 60% of the population would have considered themselves Protestant. About 30% would have considered themselves Catholic. Right now, if you took a census in Australia, it's probably about 50% would consider themselves Christian. In Germany at that time, essentially, or virtually 100% of the population would have considered themselves Christian. So in that atmosphere, um, there's a, a very charismatic le leader, you know who I'm referring to. He rose to the fore. He reduced the unemployment rate. He undertook great public works and improved efficiencies across all the industries. He was charismatic and mesmerising in his ability to speak publicly. And in that environment, we all know what happened. The devastation that was wrought not only on the Christian faith in that environment, but also throughout the whole world. And the, the question, why I'm bringing this to you is, um, it's really, think of it as I'm throwing you, us as a church, a, a ball of knotted string. And then hopefully we can unravel that because there's some real difficulties with this text, but there is also a beauty and an order in it, which I think is so powerful, um, which I hope we all benefit from. So after the, the fall of World War II, oh, sorry, and just taking one step back, in that environment, more or less most of the church, 
the, the official church in Germany at that time, they, there was very little resistance to the Nationalist Socialist Party. Most of them went along with it. Some were outright supporters of this political movement and the nationalism and the, the revival that was happening in the nation at that time. But there was a band of faithful and committed Christians that did not bow the knee to the Nationalist Socialist Party. And they could see what was happening. They did not allow the government to dictate the way in which the church would operate. At church, some of the churches of that time, there was... You can, and you, if you, you, know, you can look this up. There was churches and you'd see the altar with banners of swastikas in the church of God. It's a tragedy. And the question is, how on earth did they ever get to that point? And there, were, there was a smaller band of faithful people that were committed to the cause of Christ, could see what was happening and did not go along with the evil that was being perpetrated in their midst. One of those most famously is probably Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, Lu a Lutheran pastor who was involved in an assassination plot to bring Hitler down. That actually, that attempt failed. And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed for his involvement. Only, I think it was only months before the end of World War II. After World War II, there was the, the rise of Soviet and communist power in, in Russia and the enlargement of the Soviet Union which was under a very powerful and very clear communist ideology, which basically atheistic at its core. And even a very similar thing happened within the Soviet Union and all the satellite nations. And remember, we're talking about nations, big hundreds of millions of people in all of those Soviet nations where the, the, the state would rise up, the churches would, a lot of them, by far probably the majority, would actually go along with the restrictions and the impositions of the state on the church, and yet even in that... And, and the, the state, would they're clever, you know, they strategically use the church as an instrument for their own propaganda to control people, and they would basically ensure that up within the high echelons of the church that they had their people to ensure that the party line was sort of propagated throughout the church. Even within that context, there was a faithful group of Christians, of believers that did not bow the knee to that political system, that ideology, that spirit that somehow would possess a whole nation and yet they knew that their first allegiance belonged to Christ and to him only. Richard Wombrand was... I don't know how many people of you... Just let me see. How many people have heard of Richard Wombrand? So maybe about 5% of you. He was a Lutheran pastor. He was a Jewish man. And just to make this very personal and to bring it back down to the individual, Richard Wombrand, he was a Jewish pastor on the 29th of February, 1948. He was 39 years of old, 39 years old, my age, and he was walking to church one day. He was a pastor. He didn't have a car, didn't have a bike. They walked to church. That was the way things were at those, that time. And all of a sudden... He was um, confronted by four men who jumped out of a van, secret police. He was put into the van and taken away. For 14 years, he did not see his wife, did not see his son. And of those 14 years, he spent three years in solitary confinement. Never saw the sunlight. He Probably the only people that he saw was his guards. And even they, they would wear 
felt on their shoes, so it was silent. And there was a very deliberate effort to actually not just imprison Christian leaders, but to sort of re-educate them into the communist ideology, basically. Now, if you haven't heard of him, I'll just do a plug here. Look, at, look him up online on YouTube, Richard Wombrand, and listen to some of his stuff, because even if, even if my message is, you know, whatever, take it as it is, listen to him. You listen, there's interviews from probably the 80s and 90s when he moved to America, and interviews with him, so powerful. And he's, he was a prolific writer, in, uh, unbelievably intelligent man, in amazing memory, and every night while he was in prison, he said to keep his sanity, what he would do was he would first compose a sermon, mentally, he had no paper, and then he would deliver the sermon in the confines of his own cell every single night. Now, it is said that he said that when he first was arrested on that night, the words came to his mind, do not fear. And that was the thing that stuck with him through all of that torment and that ordeal. He's written lots of books, so he was actually the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, if you've heard of them. Now, I'm going to jump into Romans 13, chapters 1 to 7. So if you're following along, what I'm going to do is read the text then what I want to do is un unpack it quickly in terms of what this text is teaching us. And I think sometimes there's a temptation when we read big, you know, passages of Scripture that are tricky or confronting to almost instinctually sort of think about what this doesn't mean or how do I get around this or how can I interpret this for it to be more palatable. But what I want to do is basically read the Scripture. I'll, I'll give a summary of the just punch out in the, the plainest terms what this scripture is teaching. Does that make sense? And that then what I'm going to do is sort of move into the bit of let's, let's just unravel or sort of let's try to bring order to the text in, in light of what we've just described, some atrocious governments and the very clear teaching of this passage. So, Romans chapter 13 Verses 1 to 7. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authority which exists exist, have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers... Hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. 
If honour, then honour. Now, in all of this, there's a presupposition that Paul doesn't seek to explain here, but it's consistent with all of Scripture, and that is that there is no authority that exists except that which is established by God. In other words, even in a fallen world, there is an order that God has ordained. I think Martin Luther famously said, even the devil is God's devil. Think about that for a while. And and then Paul says, well, within that assumption, he says civil governments are an authority that have been established by God for the ordering of society. Now, I'll go through this quite quickly, but if, if you're taking notes, the heading for this is, so what are the duties of the civil government? The duties of the civil government as taught in this passage are, one, that they are God's servant to do good. Number two, that they are to give themselves full time to governing and to unpack that a little bit, little bit it means to attend continually or even to, for, for the government to persist in their governing despite difficulties. Number three, the civil government is to commend those who do right. The civil government should deter wrongdoing and the civil government should punish wrongdoers. So there's, that's, even though this is addressed to the, the way Christian respond, responds to civil government, Paul is actually outlining some pretty clear duties and responsibilities of civil government. Under the heading Christian duty towards civil government, if you're taking notes, one... We are to submit. The other side of that coin is we are not to rebel. We should pay taxes and revenue. And if you unpack that, in essence, they're talking about all types of tax. He's, you know, talks about tax and revenue. He's saying, so there's no excuse. He's talking about tax, tax in all its forms, you know. Uh, And we are to fear or respect the civil government and we are to honour them. Now, I'll just stop there for one minute and... There is, I think, some cultural things within Australia where we often, we're not, we're very, an, uh, a bit of a tall poppy syndrome, basically. If someone rises up, we love kicking them down. And even within government, we sort of allow the misbehaviour of the few to tarnish our view of all politicians. And I think as Christians, in particular, like we should be mature enough to see beyond that and to truly love and appreciate and see the hard work that most politicians do, and even when they fall short, to actually sort of truly give them honour and respect and not join this almost spirit of re- rebellion, in, 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 in essence, that loves just kicking government, loves always trashing politicians. But I think we as Christians should be ones that really know how to honour them in a, in a proper way and also to respect them and to have a healthy attitude towards those who carry that burden, which really is not always easy. Paul teaches in this verse that the consequences for doing good, submitting to the government in this context, is that as Christians, one, if you're taking notes, so consequences for doing good, we will maintain a good standing and clean conscience before God. So there is an element here that if you're a rebel towards government, Paul is teaching that that can actually have an impact on your standing before God, which is where this verse becomes quite heavy. That if we do the the right thing, we will avoid punishment. Our conscience will be clean. Who knows there's a very big difference between the conscience of a person who's pulled over by a police officer who has five kilograms of ice in the boot 
compared to someone who's been pulled over and you, as far as you know, you've done nothing wrong. So there is, this, there is a powerful thing here where if you do the right thing, your conscience will be clean. And as Christians, our conscience, conscience should be clean. We will avoid fear of the authority, number four. Number four and five, ideally we, would, we will be commended and praised by the authority for doing good. Now, the other side of this is, this passage also talks about the wrongdoer, those who rebel against government and do not submit. So, number one, this, verse te- this chapter teaches us that they are rebelling against God. Number two, they incur judgment on themselves from God. Number three, they incur judgment on themselves from the civil government. Number four, they will have a fear of the authority in their day-to-day life and everything that they do. And five, um, they will they will have the they'll suffer the consequences of their actions from the civil government. So there's a lot there you could spend unpack that for for you know take a long time unpacking that. But for the sake of this exercise, there's a real positive, a very clear teaching here about how we as Christians should posture ourselves towards civil government, not to be rebels, not to be rabble rousers, but to actually have a submissive spirit towards civil authority. Now, very briefly, um, the word submit in this context, it u- is, it's used multiple times throughout Scripture, but it's a word, and I, I feel this too, that when you, when you read in Scripture the verses submit and then whatever follows, particularly as it applies to us, I think there's almost a cultural cringe that we encounter when we hear that word. And I think that goes across the board. Like even the verse that says submit to government, you can just see how that would go down in universities, you know, like seriously, you know. But there's a cultural cringe and I think there is a cultural element here that has informed our thinking and the way that we understand the world. And I think as Christians, we, we need to actually push past that cultural cringe to actually embrace what God's word is teaching, enable it for us to be able to receive the blessing of what is being taught there. Does that make sense? So when, those, when we come up almost against those jarring scriptures, sometimes that's the most powerful place for us to be transformed into something different. So the, the word submit here, um, very briefly, comes from the word, um, two parts, hypo, which basically means under, and tasso, to arrange. So when, whenever you see that word submit, it's sort of to be basically arranged in an order. So there's an order here. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, we read that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Jesus submitted to his parents. Jesus submitted to God, paying the highest price on the cross. We are taught to submit to one another, for wives to submit to their husbands, to submit to leaders in the church, to submit to civil government, that the church as a whole is to submit to Christ, and that all things, all of creation will submit to Christ. Jesus taught, very relevant in in this context, is that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. And I think if you understand that scripture, all of this makes sense. I will have this, I'll, I'll state this one caveat, and that is this. In personal relationships, submission is not a gift to demand, but a gift to freely give. And I say that because I think sometimes this teaching of submission has been twisted, even in Christian circles, and abused. And it's, if, if you understand, I, I, I let me just jump into marriage relationships super quick, but it is not my role to say to Lauren, you must submit to me. 
That's between her and God. It's my role as a husband to serve her as Christ served the church. Does that make sense? So, and I think if you ever were in a position where you were trying to use any of these vision, um, in an in interpersonal relationship as a way to get your way, I think you've completely missed the point. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I think it's very important. We submit because, as Christians because we can afford it. We submit because we, because we are in Christ bigger, stronger and wiser. We submit because in Christ we see the end from the beginning. We submit because we know who we are and our identity is not governed by short-term position, short-term financial position, short-term pleasure or pain, short-term friends or friendlessness, short-term honour or disgrace, but our identity is found fully and completely in Christ, the King, the head to whom all of creation is subject. In submitting, we speed the coming of his kingdom. We push back the darkness and we preempt the complete defeat of darkness by his glorious light. There's something so powerful here that in submitting, as the Bible teaches us here, in all of these contexts, we're ahead of the game. Like we, we know that our king is the king and we, we're getting ahead of everyone else. Now, the twist of all of this is that, as I described earlier, the, the reign of Nero, that was actually it was about three years into Nero's reign as emperor, and all of the garbage that was happening on within Rome at that time in the empire, that was when Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church. And some commentators have sort of said that if the government is garbage, then we don't have to submit but whereas I think there is a broader principle here that applies for all times and all places, and it's hard to say that, well, if the government is bad, we don't submit, as a general rule, because Paul wrote this to a church that was under a very bad government at the time. So how do we reconcile the clear teaching to submit to government with the craziness that sometimes we even see in government, not only now at times, but also throughout history? Our ways are not the world's ways. To read a quote from Richard Wombrand, he lived through all of this. I was very interested to hear what he had to say. And there was a number of points where he does actually expand on this particular chapter and verse. And having some, you know, it's one thing to write a commentary in an ivory tower, it's another thing having suffered for 14 years and having your world brought into a hellish place, and then to be able to give a commentary on this verse. He said, and this is particularly relevant for us as Christians, I think, in how we see government and how we position ourselves towards them. He talks about communism, and but without... I don't want you to get too bogged down with that word, even though that is very relevant, but to think about almost any government throughout history where they have been anti-God or against God in some way. So Richard Wombrand said, Wombrand said, many, and this is talking about you know, Christianity in communist Romania at that time, many of the influential Christian leaders had not realised the danger of communism. Some had sympathised with it, others would confine themselves to what they understood to be a pure gospel, not mentioning the communist menace, because this world would mean becoming involved in politics. But when communist politicians enter the sphere of religion, introducing their, their poison or persecuting the children of God, politics is forced upon us. 
It cannot and should not be avoided. Who thinks that he can separate religion from politics knows neither religion nor politics. As Christians, we have an interesting sort of heritage in who our leaders are. Jesus, <laughs> Peter and Paul, as let's say the key examples. Jesus was brought before trial before the, the local rulers and the king at that time and was found guilty and suffered persecution by crucifixion. There's an irony in Paul writing this instruction to submit to the governing authorities because it was under Nero's rule that um, it is understood that Paul was executed by the sword in Rome under Nero's rule. The very same government executed him that he'd told the Romans to submit, the, the Roman church to submit to. The, Peter as well was understood to have been killed, cru, uh, crucified upside down, I believe at a very similar time in Rome. And he said that he didn't want to be crucified standing up. It was a special request. He didn't want to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. So he said, please crucify me upside down. The point, was, the point is that these, our leaders, the ones that wrote the scripture, they knew what they were saying. They knew that there could be a price to pay at times. I think in the book of Acts, it sums it up very well, where the apostles, it refers to the apostles, so I don't know whether that was just a group of them or all 11, but after Jesus' resurrection and after Pentecost, they were preaching God's word fearlessly and they were commanded and directed by the authorities, the Jewish leaders, stop preaching God's word. Stop it. And they refused to obey and as a result, they were put in prison. And the story is in um, um, Acts chapter 5 where they were miraculously released from prison and then they were dragged before the Sanhedrin again to give account for what they're doing. So this is from Acts chapter 5, 27 to 29. It says, They brought them, that is the apostles, in and made them stand before the Sanhedrin where the high priest interrogated them. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us responsible for this man's blood. But Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So in summary, there's a very clear instruction to submit to governing authorities. There's also a very clear precedent that at times there can be a conflict here between what the governments require from us and what God is commanding us to do. And it's been said that as Christians, the only thing that we should ever be brought before the governing authorities for is our witness for Christ. In every other respect, we should be as perfect in our adherence to the laws of the land and our adherence to civil authority as possible so that we can't be blamed for anything except one thing and that would be our preaching God's word. Does that make sense? So that is the only caveat that I can think of where this becomes turned around and that's the clarification. So in summary, when the government forbids you to do what God has commanded you to do, you obey God and accept the consequences. That's a very important aspect and you accept the consequences. And there's, you can see it playing out in the book of Acts that times they would preach 
and they'd get arrested and be put in prison. They wouldn't get arrested, then call for a revolt and an overthrow of the Jewish leadership. It's almost like an exchange to say, I will preach God, preach God's word as a matter of conscience and to do what is right. I know that's what God has called me to do. But then whatever the penalty is, even from a civil government that is improperly exercising its power, there's almost this exchange and we humbly submit to that, knowing that God is the king that we serve, the bigger king, that we have that big picture. Now, that's unpacking the scripture of Romans 13. But I want to take us a little bit further than that, that we're not simply a church that sort of is, is passive in our position and sort of this tension between so-called separation between church and state that we don't just operate in one sphere as the church and then the politics operates in another sphere and some people feel very strongly about this and, and you, you know you could debate this forever but I believe as Christians and particularly in a democracy in essence each of us are one in Australia say one 25 millionth king in a democracy does that make sense in democracies, it's government by the people. All of us have a very real responsibility for the government that we have, the form of government, you know, the, the laws that they make. And there's a very clear call in Scripture to not be simply passive observers of the world, but to be proactive in actually making positive change, to be salt in the world, to be light in the world, to be like a sweet-smelling sweet incense that actually changes our communities, our families and all those around us. Um, recently I attended a, a child safe course about two weeks ago and it was really brought home to me just how there really are some evil things happening in the world and I think in our area um, and maybe sort of our, the circles that we generally mix we're pretty sheltered um, but it really brought home to me there are some devastating things happening in our world and it doesn't take long to actually hear the stories coming in of all the things like just it just seems intractable problems that we as Australians are struggling with as a nation and we, we just don't seem to know how to deal with it. And sadly, the church in some of those cases has really been either these acts or covered them up after they've been discovered. And to me, that is an absolute travesty on what Jesus has called his church to be. And my, my call is to the church today to actually to not be following in the wake of solutions implemented by government when there's terrible problems. But as much as we can as a church, to be those that put hip and shoulder, do some heavy lifting in, the term, in terms of actually bringing answers to our world where it seems like all the wise men of the world have no idea and they're looking for answers, trying to find out what to do. But I pray that we as a church... We, we individually might not be the answer, but I think all of us do certainly have a, a part to play in that, to take some responsibility and to actually see some of these issues. And there's, in particular, I just want to challenge all of us to be people of prayer, who, who pray seriously about some of the challenges that we see in society, who understand what it means not just to... Um, every prayer is good, but not to simply offer token prayers, but to, at times understand what it means to labour intensely in intercession for some of these issues. And I was talking to Claire the other day and she recently, uh, she's involved with, um, you know, caring for Aboriginal children and so on. But there's, there's so many challenges around that. What if 
it might only be just one person, it might only be one person in this church that God really calls to say, we're going to see a difference here. And God gives you the faith, it might only be one, it only, only takes one, to say there's an intractable problem in our nation, in our world, and I don't know what I can do, but I can certainly be the widow who seeks the unjust judge and persists until I get an answer. And it might not come tomorrow, but God will give you a very clear vision of what the answer looks like and you pray and you pray and you pray and you persist and you persist and you seek the king of the kings and you seek the judge of all judges to make a difference, to intervene and to change these circumstances. And maybe as a result of that, God starts to actually answer those prayers, starts shifting some things, things you might not even understand. But there's a call here, a challenge to not simply be passive in our role, to not be, you know, if we're so entertainment-driven sometimes, but what if we made the choice to say, I'm not going to watch a movie this night, as much as I want to, I'm tired, but I'm going to spend two hours seeking God seeking God. I'm going to worship God and seek God for this one issue. Cry out to God persistently to intercede, that we would be a church of intercessors, that everyone listening to this podcast, that this would grip you to start making change. I think God is faithful in answering the prayers of his people and I think there's something in that, just that one single thing, that we would be a people of prayer, a people that are willing to give something to these causes that are not ignorant of the organisations that we are aligned with, that we would support them financially, that we would volunteer as appropriate to support the things that we um, are aligned with. There, there are groups that are able to lobby in that political space. But more importantly than just the political action, it's the spiritual, it's that prayer. Um, In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it says, Seek the prosperity of the city to which you have been, which I've sent you as exiles. And again, that's the context of God's people being brought into a pagan empire, probably not treated well. They didn't follow the ways of God. They probably had atrocious practices that would have you know, been revolting to the Jewish people. And yet, even in that context, Jeremiah, the prophet says to them, Seek the prosperity of the city to which... I have sent you as exiles. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for the nation of Australia. Pray for the Commonwealth Government. Pray for our Prime Minister. Pray for the state of South Australia, that we would be a government, a, a people with good government and good laws. And I think the warning of history is this, as we sort of look through that. At Nero's time, the Christians, I'm guessing, they were probably definitely less, maybe a couple percent of the population. But for that travesty to occur in Germany where almost everyone said they were Christian, should never have happened. Never should have happened. And I pray that we as a church, that our eyes are open enough that we as a church would have our eyes open, that we would not be silent when we should speak, would not be prayerless when we should pray, but that we see ahead and that we have a voice. In closing, I'm going to read briefly from and the musicians, the worship leaders could make their way up. 
I'm going to read from you the, from, from the Australian Constitution. Constitutions are interest, interesting documents, and I, if you ask the Americans how they feel about their constitution, a lot of them would actually, they consider it basically a sacred document. I'm not sure in Australia if we sort of revere it in quite the same way, but it's still very important. So what I'm going to do is read this, and um, it says in scriptures that God um, gives grace to the, to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And that's the best place as a church that we can be is humble before God, seeking God, seeking his face. So in the preamble to the Constitution, it says this. Whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God have agreed to unite. Humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. And the tense of that, it's an ongoing, continuous... It's not we Once we're humble and relying on God, but we humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. In closing, if you could all stand, and I just want to spend a minute, I'll, I'll say a prayer, and I want, when we pray together, to... I guess, think about the things that we can do as we sort of come out of this meeting and going into our weeks, how we can take hold of this and to be very deliberate that we're not just so caught up in our entertainment, caught up in the busyness of our lives, but actually start thinking about big picture stuff. What sort of government do I want to leave, do I want to leave for my children, my grandchildren? Because that is really the legacy that we're setting up now. Think big picture, think beyond ourselves in our small little world. But also as a church, really be challenged. And this is a very individual thing, you know, the kingdom of God, the revolution of the kingdom of God, it's by the change of the individual's heart. It's not a revolution of um, guns and steel, which is every other worldly revolution is, but the revolution of the kingdom of God is when every heart comes yielded before Jesus and the way that that revolution continues to come or the kingdom of God keeps coming is when our hearts become more yielded to him. But what I want to do as we pray is right now is just spend a few moments of prayer for our nation and its government in this verse we've learnt to submit to government but it also talks about an ideal government but i really pray that as we pray now i'll pray and just please put hip and shoulders into it as we pray together but don't let it stop here i really want to challenge you to take home that this obligation to pray for our nation our state our rulers continues it continues and that this be a regular thing for all of us to be aware of the issues, to be informed, to pray into them, to pray in front of a newspaper, you know, pray for this, I pray for this, give wisdom, help us, God, we need you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as a church, as a church community, Lord God, to honour you first and foremost as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one to whom our hearts are yielded. You've changed our lives. You've transformed us. And we praise you for your blood shed on the cross for our sins, but, Lord, also for the sins of the world. And we thank you, Lord God, for your redemption and the power that you have to change. And, Lord, we know that you have taught us to submit to government at times to take a humble position, even when at times it might cost us dearly. And I pray, Lord God, for the governments 
the Government of Australia, for the Commonwealth Government and our Prime Minister. I pray, Lord God, for our State Government and our Premier and the Cabinet and all the decision makers there. I pray for our local council. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that in this place today that your hand would be upon them, that you'd give them wisdom in their leadership. I pray that, Lord, that wise voices would be heard in the corridors of power, that you would raise up prophets, Lord God, and men and women of God to speak truth, Lord God, in the corridors of power. We pray that, Lord Jesus, that your name would be lifted up in this nation, in this state, in this community. I pray for us as a people that you would impart into us wisdom, that, Lord God, that the only thing that we would ever be criticised for in terms of... Um, that, the, that we could ever be criticised for, Lord, is simply our love and our obedience to you. Give us, as a church, Lord God, a heart to know you more. Burden us, Lord, I pray, even today and in the coming days and weeks with the things that burden you. I pray, Lord God, wake, up, wake us up. Wake us up, God. Help us to see through your eyes. Help us to see this nation as you see it, to love this nation so deeply. Stir in us, Lord God, a heart for bigger things, problems that we know are impossible to solve in our, by ourselves, but Lord God, we serve an almighty God. Strengthen us, give grace to every person here today, and bless your people. We thank you for this, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.